A warm welcome to First Move, coming to you again today from London. Fantastic to have you with us too for another jam-packed show. And coming up, ceasefire holding a further three-day truce in Sudan, allowing time for more foreign nationals to be evacuated. But sporadic fighting still being reported in the capital, Khartoum. We'll have a live report for you shortly. Plus, re-election bid unfolding. President Biden formally kicking off his next and last presidential campaign, even as more than half of Americans say they oppose him going for a second term. And depositors unloading shares of the troubled U.S. bank First Republic tumbling pre-market after admitting customers withdrew some $100 billion worth of cash in Q1, although business since has stabilized. All the details coming up. UBS also out with Q2, Q1, my apologies, results too. The first earnings report since the shotgun marriage to Credit Suisse, the bank seeing strong deposit inflows of almost $30 billion, but profits falling by more than half and clients getting cautious. UBS losing some ground in Swiss trade are the worst of the banking jitters over. We will be discussing and from booking profits to the profit in books. The CEO of American chain Barnes & Noble will be here to discuss expansion plans and top to bottom store makeovers. Seems like you can judge a bookstore at least by its cover. And on global markets, investors are certainly running for cover with U.S. futures firmly in the red. Take a look at that. European stocks are lower, too, after a softer handover during the Asia session. A mixed batch of corporate news being digested, too. GM reporting strong results and raising guidance. Pepsi also making more positive noises and McDonald's beating estimates. Its shares, in fact, hitting record highs. But then on the downside, delivery firm UPS cutting their outlook and manufacturer 3M announcing some 6,000 new layoffs. All this, of course, as we count down to the big tech earnings later this week, too. A busy show ahead, as always. And we do begin with the latest from Sudan, where a delicate three-day ceasefire is underway. Governments from around the world continuing efforts to get their citizens out before violence erupts once again between those two rival generals and their forces. This new video shows British military planes landing not in Sudan itself, but in Djibouti, East Africa, while this group of South Koreans arrived safely in Saudi Arabia on Monday. Sam Kylie joins us with more. Julia, there is a ceasefire that is being observed to some extent across uh, Sudan, uh, even in the capital Khartoum, where there's been a reduction in violence. But we've been in touch with people on the ground there are saying that there is still shooting, there is still uh, the sounds of bombardment, so it is not holding in any way uh, perfectly. This comes after intense negotiations between the warring factions in Sudan, the Saudis and the US. And this all coming at a time when uh, the British are looking at this reduction in violence as an opportunity potentially to fly in to uh, desert airstrips outside Khartoum and try to continue to evacuate what they estimate to be some 4,000 uh, British citizens still being uh, hiding effectively in Sudan. Last night we saw the RAF bringing in a large cargo plane that may well be involved in that kind of an operation. But at the, at the same time, there is really deep concerns now emanating from the World Health Organization that a laboratory in Khartoum has been overrun by an armed group. There are fears that measles, polio, 
uh, and other pathogens could be released into the community, which would be catastrophic at a time when there is so much violence. 70% of the hospitals have been effectively shut down in Khartoum, for example, and the United Kingdom and the United States, Julia, are also sending a total of four warships uh, to, uh, off the coast of Port Sudan, uh, and that is a part of contingency planning, potentially to send troops in or at least to establish some kind of bridgehead out of Port Sudan so that people could be evacuated, particularly if there's continued violence uh, over land. But the continued violence, of course, mitigates against the safe passage, which is some 500 miles, some 800 kilometers between Khartoum and Port Sudan. So a desperately complicated situation. A lot of hope being placed in this very, very fragile ceasefire. Julia? Sam Kylie there. Now, a dramatic deposit drop for First Republic Bank. Customers at the U.S. regional lender withdrew around $100 billion in the first quarter. In total, though, deposits were down 40% on the previous quarter after a $30 billion cash injection from big banks during last month's banking crisis. Shares of First Republic are down. We can take a look at that around 24% pre-market. Christine Romans joins us now on this. Christine, those numbers are eye-watering and it just shows you why there was this dramatic yeah. scramble by the Treasury and some of the largest banks in America to do a deposit drop on this. Without that, um, it's not worth thinking about. Yeah. And as someone close to all of those negotiations for that deposit drop, by the way, they said, this is a good bank. <laughs> this isn't yeah. a bank that had bad management. This is a good bank. It just shows you how confidence is so important in the banking sector and how shaken confidence was at that time. We're talking about $100 billion walking out the door. The stock is down, you know, 90% um, from before that crisis when uh, two other banks, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, uh, wobbled and collapsed. And then all of a sudden you had these concerns about banks that had a lot of uninsured deposits like First Republic. So this is what First Republic says it's going to do. You know, it says it has stabilized the situation, that it is looking at its balance sheet, that there will be some changes there uh, and that there will be job cuts as it cuts costs and really looks to how it can reposition here uh, to move forward. So the hope is, of course, that this is a quarterly earnings report that's rear view mirror looking and now this company is shoring things up as we move forward, that the banking crisis is behind us. You know, and I'll tell you that there are some economists who, who don't even like to say banking crisis. There were wobbles within the banking sector. There was fear within the banking sector, but it was contained. Uh, and, you know, hopefully First Republic is the end of that story. But very closely watching the regional banks here because so much of this is about confidence, really, in the banking yeah. system. I was going to say, Christine, when you've got a, a bank that's saying, look, we're going to cut as much as 25 percent of the workforce over the next two months in order to help reduce costs and cut unnecessary or yeah. non-essential projects and activities. You wonder how much of this is about efficiency gains and just yeah. stripping back everything. Um, I sort of still wonder how vulnerable they are perhaps to a, a bigger buyer coming in and saying, hey, look, we're just going to sort of absorb you now and, and then we move on. And I guess the other question to ask, and you quite rightly asked it, was whether this is a one-off, whether it's in the rearview mirror or to what extent this has impacted not just this bank, but other banks too and the lending that we see going forward. Yeah, I think a lot of people are looking at uninsured deposits. I think there are still is money moving around, but not the kinds of outflows that we saw um, in the in the depths of this problem. But I'll think that in banking in general, what I've been hearing, Julia, is after a year of higher interest rates, this this 
episode has caused people who may not have been paying close attention to search for yield, especially if you have more than the insured amount in, in, a, in a bank. You're thinking about where you can start to park money for better yield. And that might be something that uh, causes disruption in the banking sector, but ultimately um, means that consumers are finding a little more return. Yeah, that is fascinating, isn't it? And I was about to say, actually, it's not the only sector nor the only company that we're hearing making efficiency gains and cutting back on staff and and seeing what they can do at this point in time. Yeah. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. President Joe Biden heading back on the campaign trail, targeting a second term as U.S. president. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America. And we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. The announcement coming exactly four years after he launched his 2020 presidential bid. This time he's arguing he needs voters to give him more time to finish the job. Arlet Sainz joins us now on this. Arlet, it was expected. We've seen the video. The question now, I think, really is how does the work really begin to convince the skeptics that he's the right choice, not only for the country, I think, but the party too, the right leader for the next four years? Yeah, President Biden finally announced his re-election bid, drawing from those themes from 2020, as he said that the battle for the soul of the country is not yet complete. But he also warned that Americans' freedoms are under threat, uh, facing a threat from what he described as MAGA extremism. That video highlighted images from the January 6th insurrection, as well as efforts to limit access to abortion in this country, something that has been of concern to many voters, something that we saw play out during the midterm elections. The president in his video also they showed images of two men who could pose uh, be his challenger in a general election matchup. That includes former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has yet to enter the 2024 race. But ultimately, President Biden is hoping that voters will look at his records and give him a second term in office, looking at things like the work he's done on infrastructure and climate change and also efforts to repair relations around the world after many of those relationships were eroded during the administration of former President Donald Trump. Now, one thing that advisors tell me is that just because he's entered the campaign today, it does not mean he's going to immediately ramp up campaign-style events. He's not expected to do uh, any large rallies anytime soon. Instead, his team believes that one way he can sell himself to the American public is by simply doing the job of being president. A bit later this afternoon, he will be speaking to a big union group here in Washington, D.C., as he tries to highlight his ties to the labor community. He's also, over the course of the next two days, hosting the South Korean president here at the White House for a state visit. But one area where his team will be ramping up their efforts is around fundraising. They are aware that this will be a very expensive campaign and the president will start to try to mobilize top dollar, big dollar donors, as well as those grassroots supporters. But really, as this campaign operation is all starting to shake 
uh, take shape and formally launch, there are a number of challenges facing President Biden as he tries to seek re-election to a second term at the White House. The majority of Americans, according to recent polls, do not believe he should be running for a second term. Uh, in, even within his own Democratic par Party, uh, that figure is at about 51 percent who do not believe he should be running for re-election. And if you break down the doubters, the people who don't believe that he should run, uh, nearly half say that his age is a major issue. He is 80 years old. He would be 86 at the end of the second term if he is reelected. But ultimately, the Biden's, Biden's advisors and his allies believe that he has a strong record to run on and that uh, voters will side with him when they take a look compared to the Republican alternatives. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I, I saw an NBC News poll, and I think those are the same stats from that that said also that 60% mm -hmm. of Americans think Trump shouldn't try to retake the Oval Office, mm -hmm. including roughly a third of Republicans. So I guess if it comes down to um, a, a relative battle of the uglies here, um, then the numbers perhaps work. But we'll leave that there before I get to, told off. Arlette, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. We shall see. Arlette signs there. Thank you. Now, Fox viewers are wondering what exactly caused the network to suddenly sever ties with its star host, Tucker Carlson. Here's the official word, at least, from Fox. We have some news from within our Fox family. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have mutually agreed to part ways. Tucker's last show was this past Friday. We want to thank Tucker Carlson for his service to the network as a host and prior to that as a long-term contributor. In a frantic 24 hours for cable news fans, Carlson's departure came on the same day as CNN also said goodbye to Don Lemon and other stories that were breaking across uh, the cable news network. CNN media reporter Oliver Darcy joins me now. Oliver, have you even slept? Because it was a really busy 24 hours. Um, let's talk about Tucker Carlson first and foremost. Um, what do we think was the, the primary reason when I mean, we could name Dominion and the cost that Fox News has now got to bear as a result of that text where he was criticizing management, um, mm -hmm. a former employee that basically said the show was a toxic workplace. You can sort of take your pick. Yeah, the big question is why? Why did the Murdochs who had stood by Tucker Carlson through thick and thin, why did they decide to abandon him and fire him uh, on Monday? And the answer is really not extremely clear. I think it's easy to say, and I think it's, it's, it's obvious that Dominion Voting System's lawsuit against Fox News played a big role in his firing. Uh, but what part about the lawsuit, what factor about the lawsuit, that's unclear. Was it the ex-producer who filed a lawsuit as a result of Dominion's lawsuit, alleging rampant sexism and anti-Semitism behind the scenes on Tucker Carlson's program? Was it the uh, messages that were exposed as part of the discovery process that showed him disparaging his colleagues, including Fox Brass? There are a number of different uh, things that could have been at play that led to his firing. Uh, Fox isn't saying, but uh, certainly Dominion uh, playing a, a key role in the ouster of uh, their biggest host and a real force inside the Republican Party. Yeah. And also, I think uh, maybe I'm biased as a business journalist um, at heart, but I do think business decisions come to play here and conversations with advertisers are also important at this moment. And we are at a sort of split screen moment as we push ahead to the 2024 election. So some tough decisions made, but decisions made nonetheless. Um, the other big story yesterday, uh, Oliver, was CNN parting after 17 years with, uh, with Don Lemon, too. 
That, that's right. Uh, CNN announcing yesterday, just really after uh, do, uh, after uh, Tucker Carlson's firing had been announced, CNN announcing in a statement that Don Lemon uh, will no longer be with the network and that they had parted ways. I'll read you a statement from CNN CEO Chris Lick that went out to staffers. It said that CNN and Don have parted ways. Don will forever be a part of the CNN family, and we thank him for his contributions over the past 17 years. Uh, in a statement of his own, I should say, Don Lemon punched back at CNN management. He said that he was upset that uh, they did not have, uh, they did not tell him directly that this news was delivered through his agent. Uh, CNN then disputed that version of events, saying that Don Lemon had the opportunity to speak to CNN management, but declined. And so there's this back and forth now playing out between CNN and Don Lemon. But sources on both sides say that, that Don, who had just signed a new contract, uh, with uh, for CNN this morning, the, the new flagship morning show on CNN, that he will be paid the remainder of his contract out. And so um, there's at least some resolution, I think, that's uh, good for both parties there. Yeah, but not all. 17 years. What a run. Oliver Darcy, thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead, the latest twist in the tale of Barnes and Noble. I'll discuss expansion and embracing book talk with the chain's CEO next. And later, from book talk to turning up tech, I speak to the special envoy of a Dutch tech accelerator with a royal touch. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Barnes & Noble is the world's largest retail bookseller, and it's in the middle of its largest expansion in over a decade. The chain plans to open 30 new shops this year, two of which, in fact, are former Amazon bookstores. It also plans to remodel at least 90 existing stores. Part of Barnes & Noble's revamp model includes making its stores feel more like independent retailers instead of taking a one-size-fits-all approach. Joining us now is James Daunt. He's the CEO of Barnes & Noble. James, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, as a lover of real books, when I saw the statistics on your book openings, I was truly blown away. You're, you're a chain in name only. For those that may not know the Barnes & Noble brand, who are you and what are you to your customers? We are the, the, the largest uh, and last actually remaining surviving large substantial book chain in, in the United States. Um, for those uh, in the United Kingdom, the equivalent is Waterstones. And now generally, rather sadly, the, the tens in most developed uh, Western markets to be a single large bookseller that survives. And, and some of us um, got perilously close to death in the relatively recent uh, uh, past. Explain how you're managing to do this, because uh, to your point, whether it's the sort of pre-pandemic um, concern, I think, about people reading at all, if the changes in how people choose to read more digitization versus traditional books. Explain how you've sort of revamped the brand. And it is about sort of making individual bookstores feel independent, but also, I think, giving autonomy back to those that run those bookstores and saying, look, you know your customers best sort of get on with it and provide what they want. It, it really is as simple as that. If you want to run a really good bookstore, you have to allow the bookselling team within that store. If it's an independent bookstore, obviously that comes very naturally because that's who they are. Uh, but in a chain, you have to give it to the individual teams, the manager and, and, and the wider team and say, get on with it, do the best that you can. Uh, do what your customers want to and give them the freedom to sell the books that 
that are best for them. And it's that sort of personality that, that is driven by that, that, that creates really good and engaging bookstores. And people love good bookstores. Yeah, one of the most important sources of revenue, or at least um, a stable source of revenue, I believe, was this relationship with the publishers, that you would promote certain books and provide um, key spots in the store for certain books too. And I think that was something else that you also said, hang on a second, um, that's increasing our return rate of books that simply don't sell. And you broke some of those stable chains or, or sources of, of revenue, but at the same time sort of helped in terms of the books that were selling and returning less. Uh, absolutely, and, and unfortunately, I think it, um, uh, in my predecessors, who, to be honest, were retailers rather than booksellers, um, were were addicted to that uh, revenue that came from selling space um, within their bookstores to publishers. And if you do that, then by definition, every bookstore has to be the same because you sell the space to you know John Grisham here or Stephen King there. Um, but that creates identical bookstores and. Whilst identical might be great if you're a pharmacy chain or a clothing retailer, uh, it doesn't work with bookstores. Um, so we stopped all of that and just simply leave it to, up to each individual store to present themselves entirely as they wish. Of course, you do forego the money um, from, from publishers, but you sell a lot more um, and you don't have returns and all of those inefficiencies that exist with, with the old model. And overall, we've done dramatically better in consequence. Can you put that into numbers? What percentage of books um, should be returned, you would assume, if the, if the business is thriving and is healthy? And, and where did you go from and where are you now, on average? Well, typically, um, uh, under the old model, we would send back about a quarter of the books that we bought, 25%. Wow. Um, but that, if you was uh, concentrated in new books, and we would send back probably about 70%, um, nearly three quarters of all the new Ouch. books that we bought. Uh, but that's really terrible. But also what, what, what's really problematic is your stores end up being full of all the books your customers don't want to buy. We've got that down to about 8% now. And we think this in the year that's coming up, our ambition is to get it below 5%. So a really a dramatic turnaround, which simply is a reflection that our booksellers in the stores are much better at deciding what their customers want to buy than we ever were centrally. Yeah, know, know your customers and pick the right books for them. Um, it, it sounds simple, but as you said, it sort of takes some tough decisions initially, at least, to give up stable revenue sources. Um, I think the pandemic helped. You can correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I think for many of us, we had a bit more time. We were perhaps traveling less. Um, we relearned our, our love of books. Do you think it's sustainable? And, and going forward, where do you see the split between digital books and physical books and particularly, I think, age groups as well. We were having a discussion on my show about young children always loving physical books, no matter who they are or where they are, versus a digital version. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing about these trends is that they are global. It's no different yeah. in the United States to the United Kingdom, rest of Europe, or, or indeed the Far East. The pandemic encouraged a lot more reading. Um, it was particularly uh, buoyant and, and engaging for young adults. Um, and it appears to be um, continuing. Um, we've seen dramatically strong growth um, now that we're, we're well into April and, and heading in, in towards the summer season. Um, and that makes sense to me. And, and over a long, long bookselling career that I've had, when these moments of growth happen, and it's, it happens with Harry Potter, it happened with the book clubs, it happened with even, uh, dare I say, things like Fifty Shades of Grey, 
We never lost those customers because it, it encouraged reading and it engaged people with reading. It's very exciting. <laughs> I'm not sure we're allowed to mention Fifty Shades of Grey at this time in the morning. <laughs> it's late enough somewhere in the world. Um, talk to me about book talk as well, because you've also in many ways harnessed the power of, of social media. And this is book reviews on Instagram. Um, that's something that you've also adopted um, to facilitate, again, customer choices in store. I mean, to be honest, I don't think we particularly adopted it. It's simply that we've left the, the bookselling teams to get on with it. And you know, the age group of our booksellers is um, in a large part identical to the, to the, to the kids and, and young adults who are driving the booktop phenomenon. Um, and indeed, a lot of it takes place within our stores. And you can see um, when, when schools, uh, uh, the school day comes to an end, our stores fill up with lots and lots of kids. Of course, you don't have to pay to come into a bookstore. You don't have to buy anything. And they're in having fun, great gangs of them. And it's that sort of natural, uh, I think, sympathy of the bookstore with what, um, with, with the physical experience that, that communities want to have, and particularly these these young kids. So I, I think it's a natural um, affinity rather than, than any deliberate purpose to exploit. <laughs> An affinity and a progression. Um, what our viewers might not know is that um, private equity came in and bought Barnes and & Noble and, and you became the CEO in, in, in 2019, but your sort of book love was well established long before that. You mentioned Waterstones too, um, but I believe you also own yourself nine independent bookstores, and, I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I did mention that two of the stores that you're opening were former Amazon bookstores. And um, is there a sort of moment when, firstly, when people were saying, oh, Amazon's going to get into books, where you thought, oh my goodness, this is, this is perhaps it for the independent bookstore model, or were you always confident that, to your point about what works in these stores, um, that, that you could beat the I big guys, history, the real I've, big guys? Yeah. I, I think from my history, I've been sort of relatively confident as a small independent books store owner as I was. You know, I had Amazon or still am actually. Sort of Amazon was the big beast and obviously one was very, very sort of concerned. But I always thought if I just ran a good bookstore, um, my customers clearly liked me and I would be fine. And, and that indeed was the case. And, and I simply have brought those principles first into Waterstones and, and now into Barnes and & Noble. And I mean, Yes, of course, as we open in, in former Amazon Books locations, one does a sort of particularly inelegant sort of jig of joy as one <laughs> goes across the, the, the doorstep. But, um, <laughs> but really, bookstores are different. Um, and we want people reading and we don't, we want them reading ebooks, we want them listening to audiobooks. We want them reading, you know, in their public libraries, because all of that encourages that engagement with books and ideas that ultimately brings people into our stores. Do you think to your point about um, the crux of what successful, what a successful bookstore looks like, um, that it is very unique to this sector and perhaps you can't necessarily give advice to other sectors that are challenged by an Amazon or a big juggernaut um, in the same way or is perhaps the message here sort of stick to what you know and, and know your customer incredibly well and in a way don't get distracted. I, th I think that's uh, right, and and we are a vocational trade. Uh, almost everybody who works in a bookstore, certainly those who are building their careers in bookstores, are vocationally minded. You know, we are very sort of immersed in the literary world and and the power of books and why it matters, and and our role within societies, which is nowhere near as important as that of the public library, um, but is nonetheless something which we take great pride in. Yes, keep reading. I think we're all better for it. James, great to chat to you. Thank you so much. James Daunt, the CEO Pleasure. of Barnes & Noble there. Thank you.
Welcome back to First Move and US stocks are up and running this Tuesday and unfortunately, as you can see, it is a lower open across the board, despite some pretty decent corporate results from the likes of Pepsi, GM and McDonald's. Perhaps some nervousness over the tech earnings still to come later today. And an AI bot battle is brewing after the closing bell between two of the biggest names in tech, chatbot rivals. I'm talking about Alphabet and Microsoft, both reporting results. Microsoft, of course, the mega investor in chat GPT. What Alphabet says about the chatbot challenges might end up being more important, in fact, than its overall results. We shall see shares of both firms a little lower in early trade. And in banking news from a shotgun marriage with Credit Suisse to a Q1 wedding reception hangover, UBS shares under pressure after reporting its weakest quarterly profit in years. Clients feeling increasingly cautious as well, but perhaps a bit of icing on the merger wedding cake. Anna Stewart winning the bouquet <laughs> toss on this one. Anna, not long now to be the bridesmaid, to be the bride yourself. I was very excited when I read that. But let's focus on Credit Suisse and UBS before I get way too distracted. Um, Lacklustre. There's so much in these mm. earnings, never mind the big merger deal to come. There was a lot to get into. By numbers, I'd say overall pretty disappointing. Mm. Net profit came in a little over a billion dollars for the first quarter, which was actually down more than 50% from the year before. Now, you can look at the massive litigation costs they're putting aside for mortgage-backed securities, a real old hangover, as you say, $665 million being put aside for that. But even if we take that out of the equation, I think these results are still pretty disappointing. Now, some of that will speak to the fact that actually banking has had a very rough start to the year, not least following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Also looking just a very weak economy, weak suppressed trading activity, weak investment banking uh, revenues as well. Obviously, that is not what Sergio Amotti, the new and former CEO of UBS, wants to talk about. Front and centre in terms of the bank is inflows. They're very proud of the inflows they've had for the first quarter, particularly in wealth management, which actually saw $28 billion of inflows. Now, it's making the point that about a quarter of that came in the last 10 days of the quarter. So after that big takeover announcement of Credit Suisse was made. But looking back to Credit Suisse's earnings yesterday, we know that's actually just a fraction of the outflows that we actually saw from Credit Suisse. So some good news there, but certainly not getting all of the activity that it might like. Sergio Motti saying today, it's not a straight line to success. Yeah, I love your point and the comparison about what we saw flowing out from Credit Suisse and what we saw flowing into UBS, of course. I mean, we know a lot of money will have gone into money markets. And I, I also get that point about the idea that, look, they were still attracting inflows even after this deal was announced. But uh, quite frankly, where else were they going to go if you wanted to stick them in a bank? Um, what are the analysts saying, Anna? Because you would expect Sergio Motti, the, the new CEO, old new CEO, to say, look, <laughs> we've got this under control. It's going to be OK. But uh, the analysts are saying, uh Investors need to be a little bit cautious here, I think. Of course. And I, I think the unfortunate thing is what we don't have here, and it's really no surprise, is details Detail. on this massive monster takeover. And we're not going to get those details, I think, for a little bit longer. Everyone wants to know what are they going to do with Credit Suisse Investment Banking Unit? Are they going to still spin it off? Are they going to fold it? What happens in terms of layoffs? What happens in terms of the domestic banking synergies and whether or not they have to spin some of that off? What happens in terms of all of the, I don't know, legacy litigation issues that we're still seeing emerging from Credit Suisse? Have they gone through all of the books yet? There's a lot of unknowns here. So, yeah, analysts very nervous about what's going to happen coming forwards uh, with this monster takeover. And we're not going to get those details, at least not for a few weeks yet. 
Yes, not necessarily a marriage made in heaven, Anna, unlike yours. <laughs> oh, I, I hope there. so, Julia. That's so sweet. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> okay, coming up after the break, I'm joined by Dutch royalty on a visit to California to strengthen tech ties. I'll explain after the break. Welcome back to First Move. As we've long been discussing now, the tech sector has been through a pretty turbulent time. Just within the past year, investors were given a reality check on tech company valuations as interest rates around the world soared. We've seen tens of thousands of jobs cut. And then the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank added yet more uncertainty. But that doesn't mean the innovation stops. In fact, far from it. These are exciting times for startups focused on sectors like AI, cybersecurity and climate tech, just to name a few, according to our next guest. TechLeap is a Dutch government-backed tech accelerator, bringing innovators together with investors and helping startups grow. Right now, its key people are visiting San Francisco, prospecting for opportunities and building bridges between the United States and Europe. And joining us now is TechLeap's special envoy, His Royal Highness Prince Constantin von Oronje. Your Royal Highness, fantastic to have you back on the show. Thank you for joining us. Um, I think we can call it a lively six to 12 months for the tech sector. What has it meant for the startups in your ecosystem and how is sentiment today? Yeah, it was lively actually. Um, and, th and thanks for having, having me on the show again. Um, obviously, um, it, the sentiment ranges from it's going to be a bloodbath to no, there's really a silver lining because uh, you know climate tech is picking up. Uh, we're seeing a lot of um, uh, energy energy related investments. Health is still doing going strong. So overall, I mean, we're seeing a bit what you're seeing in the U.S. Bigger investments are down. Uh, more uh, investments are being done in the uh, in the early stages, uh, and there's a and there's really a focus on uh, on the kind of the harder tech, so uh, climate, energy, uh, food, and those kind of uh, related areas. Yeah, so both of those things actually can be true. There's perhaps been a clean out of some of the, the weaker names, the, the less obvious places to invest that I think everybody can see has huge potential going forward. And at the same time, people are being more selective, one, about where they're investing into um, the startups are perhaps focusing on being more efficient, being profitable sooner. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what also the message we're getting here in Silicon Valley is, uh, yes, it's, it's very tough, uh, but a lot of companies have been financed that may not have been financed under other conditions. You know, we've been uh, running a high of more than 12 years and, uh, and, and some consolidation isn't actually bad. It released a lot of uh, talent onto the market. So younger companies can now actually afford the tech talent that they couldn't afford. So all in all, there's a, there's a positive uh, side effect of this. Uh, notwithstanding, if you are, of course, a tech company uh, in this stage, you are looking at uh, still two to three quarters of uh, of uh, postponed investments. And uh, and if you're running out of cash, that's uh, potentially a problem. Yeah. But your point about a more efficient resource allocation, including labor, I think is a vitally important one. Um, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank was, I think, a shock for the for the entire startup community, wherever you were in the world. We had startups calling it the gold standard for the industry, even in the aftermath. I think we have to separate the bank from the capital arm, too. I believe that the, yeah. the Dutch government, at least before the collapse, was in talks with Silicon Valley Bank to provide money for a fund of funds in Europe in exchange for, for venture capital. Is there any exactly. hope that perhaps that 
might still happen in the future? Is that part of some of the conversations, at least, that, that you're going to be having there? Uh, not at the moment. I mean, uh, we know that um, um, Silicon Valley Bank's uh, foreign activities have been uh, mostly uh, taken over by other banks. Um, and um, uh, and we know that, I mean, this currently the bank is really focusing on on getting back uh, back into business. Uh, we've had, uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm out here also to uh, to reestablish the, the relationship. Uh, we're very happy to see that Silicon Valley Bank is actually fully operational and is supporting startups and that, uh, and that yes, it has been a very kind of traumatic cri uh, crisis weekend and weeks after. But currently, they're they're really back to doing what they're doing best is serving startups like like no other bank really does. Yeah. What do you want to actually hear from from new management to that point? Well, I mean, the um, um, the fact is that they do stuff and they work and they they bank funds and they bank startups and they provide uh, venture debt like no other institution does. So um, um, basically there is still a very big demand and, uh, mm. and that demand is being filled. So uh, many of their clients are still banking with them and have come back. Um, so um, I think for the staff, it's been, uh, it's been incredibly traumatic. Uh, and for many of the, the, the startups, it was, and, and I think the investors had a really rough patch, but, um, but all in all, uh, I think here in Silicon Valley, people are looking forward like they always do. They tend to uh, tend to look at the positive and at the opportunities, <laughs> and uh, and so do we. I mean, we uh, we continue our programs. We did. We have lost a partner in that sense, but we haven't lost Silicon Valley back as a partner in in terms of networks and contacts. And they're still uh, extremely generous with uh, with everything they can, except for of course the investments in Europe. They've uh, have sadly been uh, been put on hold. Yeah, the, the money is, is the key. Has all of this made it more difficult to, to get financing, to your point? And I guess, can we please differentiate between the early stage financing? Is it still easier, at least, to get the earlier stage financing for some of the, the startups in Europe and then obviously the Dutch ones that, that you're certainly working with and, and represent versus later stage financing? Yes, we've seen obviously the, the, the likes of Tiger Global, SoftBank um, um, have moved out of this space, especially right. of the late uh, late stage investment pre-IPO and the IPO market has largely come to a halt. But I think uh, signals are that, uh, that IPO activity will pick up uh, over summer and in, in Q3 and four. So that will be a positive signal. Obviously, if uh, rates come down, inflation comes down, that again could be a uh, could be a, a signal for uh, investments to to start to increase again. So that's basically the, that are the signs that we're looking for. I sort of wonder whether it will also perhaps accelerate some of these businesses to go public perhaps sooner than they might have done simply to get money because that is the the sort of most easy on a tough scale option for them now if they can't get that later stage financing. Do you yeah. think there's any sense to that or am I just hypothesizing in the dark? Depends a bit on their investors, of course, if they want to yeah. take uh, if they want to take a cut. But uh, I think mm. uh, no, I think what we will be seeing is more M and A activity because these companies have become where their valuations have come down considerably, and so it's become much more interesting uh, um, to acquire these companies. And as they are running out of cash, they will be looking for options. So we will see more uh, strategic M and A happening, uh, and and of course. 
the companies that have uh, solid investors will uh, will go back to their own investors and and who uh, will provide them with the capital to continue uh, because there's also something you know if you, if you emerge out of a crisis and you're well capitalized then there's much more chance that you become the category leader so funds are really kind of focusing on their portfolio instead of on on doing new deals so those companies that are that are back that have uh, have a good runway are in a pretty solid solid position going forward yeah, and this can be a huge opportunity to differentiate yourself. Speaking of that, because you are flying the flag for Dutch startups um, in the United States, you mentioned um, climate tech in particular. Yes. What yeah. really gets you excited and where do some of these European Dutch startups specifically have edge, even as you go to the United States and say, hey, look, we're looking for money and we can kind of show you the way forward? Well, actually... Um so where there's an edge is in the in the really complicated deep science, you know, and this is ranges from semiconductor and uh, quantum computing to uh, new energies like uh, like uh, nuclear fusion, uh, these kind of uh, areas where uh, there's really much of a greenfield still. Um, and um, so it's less in maybe in fintech and in, in SaaS companies. Those are, um, are kind of uh, maybe a bit saturated, even though there's still really good fintechs coming out. And, and on the whole, I think we are we are really quite quite bullish. Um, and uh, because we've seen that in Europe, the valuations have been lower. Um, and that Europe has become a very interesting market also for for American investors. And, uh, and and we think that also because um, this whole shift towards um, you know the energy transition, food transition, uh, these these things have been picked up by European governments as well as priority areas. So there's also a lot of public money flowing into the venture capital system in Europe, which has actually financed these companies. So as um, as you know, they will go into. Q1 and 2 next year, and we hope that um, also the American funds, you know, their appetite is going to pick up. Uh, we see that for those companies, uh, there's likely to be uh, substantial capital available. Mm. It's interesting that, that, to your point, governments are also laying the groundwork um, for the advancement that we're seeing in European startups relative to the United States, which I think is an important message across the board. Um, can I ask your mm. views on um, ChatGPT and artificial intelligence specifically and the opportunities perhaps that you see there and what side you fall on, on, on those in the industry at least, that, or at least some of them that are saying there needs to be a pause in development simply to build some guidelines, talk about the ethics and understand where we're headed on this. Where do you lie? Yeah. yeah. As you ask the question, I ask, well, what would ChatGPT uh, answer? Uh, <laughs> exactly. But uh, no, I, th I think uh, I don't. I don't. I'm not on any side of this this conversation, except for that I think it's impossible to just halt a development like that. Uh, it is interesting that um, um, such high, you know, standing individuals from Silicon Valley and from the tech scene have been actually building a lot of these AI. Uh, technologies that they are the ones kind of voicing their concern. So it is something that we need to need to be be aware of, and I think governments should be uh, really keen to follow this, build skills as well in this space, uh, and set certain boundaries for their development. Because, quite frankly, you know we also have human rights to protect, and and if the AI kind of infringes on those, you know there's something that governments need to do to protect individuals. On the other hand, you know, you want uh, you want innovation to uh, to flourish, and you don't want to stop the development. And we had a very interesting conversation actually here in the valley 
Um, and it was about, you know, oh, someone made a statement that uh, you, you can't have ChatGPT uh, giving medical advice. And that sounded like a very um, acceptable statement. You don't want an AI uh, to replace doctors. But then somebody said, well, in India, there's uh, 300,000 people for every psychologist. So if you have mental health, there's no way you're going to get access to psychologists. Uh, and then ChatGPT provides you, um, or these kind of tools can provide you a really good uh, alternative. So um, in where there's scarcity, actually, um, this, this technology can really democ uh, democratize, democratize the access to, to knowledge and expertise. I thought that was a really uh, pertinent point. We, don't, we shouldn't always take a very kind of Western-centric view to this and see how these technologies can also really benefit uh, progress in other parts of the world. Yeah, but it has to be overlaid with human intelligence and judgment too. I think that's the message. And, and um, underpinned. <laughs> yes, underpinned. Yes, not just overlaid. Um, it's been a pleasure to chat to you, Your Royal Highness. Thank you so much for your time once again and good luck with, with all your discussions. Look forward to um, chatting again and hearing um, your progress. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to chat Have to you. Have a good day. Welcome back to First Move. Russia's top diplomat set to chair another UN Security Council meeting shortly in New York. On Monday, Sergei Lavrov chaired a meeting that was supposed to focus on peace, but he was strongly criticized by Western diplomats over Russia's actions in Ukraine. This comes as Moscow threatens to terminate the Black Sea Grain Deal. And finally, it's a big day in space for Japan and the United Arab Emirates. We could be about to witness the first lunar landing by a commercial spacecraft. Yes, the Japanese lander Hakutu is carrying the Rashid rover, which was developed in the UAE. It was launched by a SpaceX rocket, which blasted off from Cape Canaveral back in December. Yes, I remember it well. If you're wondering why it took so long to get there, we're told it's been following a low energy trajectory to save fuel. Kind of a slow amble to the moon. That's fine. Still first. We'll see. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the world is next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.